Our sermon series right now is called Back Together, and we are talking about the biblical art of reconciliation. How do we put relationships back together, whether it's friendships, marriages, families, uh, workplaces, communities, countries, the world? How do we put things back together? And we're talking about this for two reasons. Number one is because hopefully you, you personally want to find reconciliation in broken relationships in your own life. And we, we have an, a desire for that, right? That's something we want on our own. But also it's part of our mission as the church. God calls us to be a part of a ministry of reconciliation, to bring people together, and that's, that's part of who we are. So that, that can be a very daunting challenge, and I don't think any of us feel like we absolutely know the, the exact answer for how to do that in our world. But Scripture teaches us certain things that we can do, certain behaviors, certain practices, character traits that he uses uh, that God uses to build reconciliation. That's what we've been going over. So the first one was self-control. We talked about the fact that if you're going to create reconciliation, if you're going to heal relationships, you need to be able to decide to do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Right? You have to be able to do what's right even if you don't feel like it. Because if we always felt like doing the right thing, then we wouldn't need the Bible to tell us to do the right thing. It would just happen. We wouldn't have so many broken relationships if reconciliation was natural. Self-control, step one. Step two is love. We talked about biblical love, which is a commitment to another person, putting another person's good above your own inclinations, your own desires, deciding to pursue someone else's good. That's what God does. That's what Jesus did. That's what he calls us to do. And you can see the connection with self-control. You can't love that way if you don't have self-control. And last week I told you that everything else in this, or two weeks, or yeah, last week I told you that everything else in this ser- series builds off of love. And that kind of love. So last week we talked about this idea of acceptance. How in Romans 14, Paul tells the Romans that they need to accept people the way God accepts them and on the terms God accepts them. Because so often we draw different boundaries and we say God may, may accept you, but for me to accept you, you also have to do these other things. And those other things end up standing in the way of reconciliation and have created a lot of barriers that we really need to be overcoming as Christians. What I was planning on talking about today is submission. When I charted out what I was going to talk about, I looked at, I went through all of Paul's letters and I found the things that came up repeatedly and the things that I thought were really important and submission comes up a lot. And so that was the plan. And then this will happen every once in a while. I think, okay, this is what I'm going to preach on. It sounded good like a month ago. And then I got down to reading the scripture and seeing what it says and I realized it doesn't quite say what I thought it said. So I can't just stand up and say what I was planning on saying if it, where I thought it was going to go if that's not where the Bible goes, right? I should follow what the Bible says. So instead, we're actually going to take a different approach. to. The, we're going to be in the same passage. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 and 6. We're going to be looking at a passage called uh, about submission. But, it's not, but there's a very important element in here of a particular kind of love, or rather God's love in a particular kind of situation. And the word I'm going to use for it is charity. It is a word that we use to describe, you know, giving things to the less fortunate is typically our main use for it, but it actually has a long history in the church of a, of a bigger meaning, and, and we're going to look at this aspect of love. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to focus in on the situation in the church in Ephesus, and what, is, what situation is Paul speaking to. Then we're going to talk about this idea of charity or love, what this is, 
And finally, we are going to look at the art of reconciliation. What does it mean to seek reconciliation if, if charity is an essential part of that? So, we're going to start in Ephesus. Now, we don't actually know all that much about the situation in Ephesus. Paul's letter is actually pretty broad. It doesn't touch on specific issues in the church the way 1 Corinthians does. Like 1 Corinthians, he calls out individuals and, and individual situations. In Ephesians, it's pretty broad. But you can tell from what he's talking about some general dynamics that are going on. And, and Ephesians, remember we preached through Ephesians about a, month, a year and a half ago, and the, the theme was uni, uh, united in Christ, because that seems to be a big theme in Ephesians. It's because of this amazing message, this countercultural message that Paul was preaching. Paul taught the Ephesians that they had all been made equal in Jesus. They were all one. They were all brought on the same playing field. And, and you've seen me go over a series of, of verses from different writings of Paul where he emphasizes this. In Galatians, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, he spends the first three chapters, he's really focusing on Jews and Gentiles in the first three chapters of Ephesians, but the whole thing is talking about how Grace, the fact that we are saved by grace, puts us on the same playing field so that none of us can claim that we got in on merit, that we're better than those people. Like the Jews can't say, hey, we've been, always been God's people. And the Gentiles can't say, well, hey, we're, we're the ones he brought in to make it look good. Right? Like they, they have to, they all got in by grace. And so that puts us on a level field. And it builds up to chapter four where he says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's this beautiful vision of the church united around Christ and brought, brought on, on a level playing field, which is amazing considering who was in this church and, and what culture they were in, because this church was full of people from different um, ethnicities, different social levels, different, and, and those were really hard lines. Like the lines between classes, the lines between the genders, the lines between cultures were really hard, strict lines. Uh, and yet he says we are all brought together as one. And then he's, tells, he's, he's talking to them about how to live that out, and he says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is what I was planning on talking about, this mutual submission that he ta- that he he recommends to them, that he calls them to. This idea, and it fits really well with what we've been talking. You can see how it's a natural progression. When you talk about love being, I'm going to put another person's good above my desires and my impulses, you can see how that leads right into a, a, a community of people, if they're living that out, are going to submit to each other. There will be times when a person's need needs to override what I may want to do, and I submit to what they're doing. And that person, if they're loving me the same way, would need to submit to my needs at times because of, just because of living out that love, right? And so what I wanted to talk about is mutual submission. And, and I, I, but the problem is that where I wanted to go with mutual submission is not where Paul goes. Okay? And I had to admit something that, uh, that I just had to admit to myself it doesn't actually say what I, I want it to say here. Um, here's where Paul goes next. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be 
to their husbands in everything. The next thing that Paul says is wives should submit to their husbands. And that's, that's, that, the problem isn't that necessarily for what I wanted to say, but it doesn't then say husbands submit to your wives. That's what I wanted it to say. And that's not where he's going with it. Okay? Now, ultimately, I do believe that the ideal is mutual submission. And the reason I, I believe that is, uh, you'll, you may have noticed I switched translations. This is the New American, or uh, this is the, what is it? The NASB, New American Standard Bible. Okay? And one of the things I like that they do is they will, sh- any words in italics are words that they had to add because it's not in the Greek, but it makes sense of the passage. Because Greek uses different sets of words, and so sometimes you have to put in an extra word to make it make sense in English. So, for instance, you'll notice at the top it says wives, and be subject is in italics. That's because it doesn't actually say be subject in the verse. It's because it's that word for submit, it's carrying over from the previous verse. It says, submit to each other, wives to your husbands which tells me that the topic sentence of this section is submit to each other. So that's the reason why I believe that mutual submission is the goal, because he's actually setting a conversation that he's going to have through the rest of the chapter and into chapter 6 about mutual submission. But he doesn't say, when he applies mutual submission, he doesn't say, wives submit to your husbands, husbands submit to your wives. Why does he tell specifically the wives to submit to their husbands? Well, there are a couple of approaches to this. One really common one is to say that it is because God designed women to be in submission to their husbands. That there is something innate in the way women are made, that they are not made to lead, they're not made to be in charge, and they are made to submit, and that's just how it's supposed to be. So God is talking, he is talking about an eternal design that God has for people. Cards on the table, I don't believe that. Mainly because, well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is because I don't actually see that in Scripture. And another is because I don't see that in God's people. But why it does seem like in this passage, he says, um, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands. What it seems to be saying on a simple reading is, God designed the church. The church is supposed to be subject to Jesus. Therefore, women are supposed to be subject to their husbands. And you can tell that's what the interpreters thought because in the last verse, it says, ought to be in italics. That means that was added in order to make sense of it because the same thing is happening where they have to pull the verb from earlier in the sentence. But the problem is the verb earlier in the sentence is not ought to be. The verb is is. As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands, or so, so also the wives to their husbands and everything. The church is subject, and wives are subject to their husbands. That is an observation of a historical political fact, which is that women were subject to their husbands. It was a matter of law. A wife was, a sub, was subject to her husband in the exact same legal sense that children are subject to their parents today. Legally, women were minors. They couldn't own, they, they had to have their husbands co-sign on any kind of property or business deals or anything like that. Like, their husbands were legally responsible for them. And this is the challenge that the Ephesians are living in because it's one thing for Paul to say, hey, we are all on the same playing field. We are, are we are all on the same level before Christ. But then they're going to step outside the door 
all these people who are equal before Christ, and some of them still own each other. Some of them are still are legally subject to the other. So legally, they were not equal. As much as Paul may tell them that in Christ they are, legally they are not. And some of them had extreme power over others. The legal right to, to murder your wife if she's unfaithful, that kind of stuff. Right? Like extreme power. How do you live that? How do you live out what Paul is preaching in a world where people own each other? That seems to be the challenge that Paul is dealing with. And it's actually, it reminds me rather of a Rubik's Cube. Of course it does. But go with me here. Go with me. Why is a Rubik's Cube hard? Compare it to a jigsaw puzzle. How hard is it to figure out where the pieces go on a Rubik's Cube? It's super easy, right? People joke about taking the stickers off. Like, if you do that method, it's super easy to put a Rubik's Cube together. Why is it hard? It's hard because in order to move one piece, you have to move other pieces. And so if you just play around with it and try to do it without knowing a method, you may get one piece in the right place, but then that other, the first piece you had in the right place, now it's at the bottom, and you, it meant for it to be at the top, right? Like it's, it, that's what makes it hard, is that moving one piece has to move another piece. And this is the same problem that we run into when we are trying to live out the reality of the gospel that we are all, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Is if you look over the past 2,000 years of history, when the world tries to do this, what happens is we just invert the slaves and the masters. We invert the, the person with power, the people with power and the people without power. We just create new authoritarian structures. It happens over and over again. We, we tried to move this side up, but then it required this side to go on the bottom, and you always end up with, with a top-down thing. So this is the challenge. The Ephesians needed to know how to live out the gospel in a broken and oppressive culture. How do we actually do this thing? How do we be this community that God has called us to in a world where we're supposed to be mutually submissive, but some of us own each other? And we can't actually really change that. What do we do? And the answer to that is charity. Here's what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That word love is in Greek is agape. And if you translate agape into Latin, you get charis. And if you translate that into English, you get charity. Charity means love. But the, the way I'm using it here and, and the way Paul is using it here is specifically love in a situation between a person who has an advantage and a person who is disadvantaged. Right? Because that's what, or, or the person who's in power and the person who's under that power. That's what's similar between husbands and wives in Ephesus and Jesus and the church. That is literally the connection that Paul is making. That's why he puts them together. Is he's saying, you know, he says, wives, you are subject to your husbands the same way the church is subject to Christ. That's not saying that it's, it's a, this eternal design pattern. It's saying that he wants them to think through their behavior in light of the gospel. Use the gospel to think through these situations. He's teaching them how to think. So then he tells the husbands, you got to do the same thing. So think through. If you're in a position of authority, then you have to behave the way Jesus behaves when he's in a position of authority. How does Jesus treat those who are under his power? And that's this kind, this special, it's not necessarily a special kind of love. It's just a special situation, a special scenario for God's love. And what does that look like? And we're going to call that charity. So charity is the kind of love that Jesus shows for those who are under his authority. 
And at this point, we should all be on the same page, regardless of how you, what your opinion is or your position on submission and in and, and, and marriage, we're all on the same page, right? That Jesus, that husbands are called to love their wives the way Jesus loves the church. That's, that's the calling, okay? So the question then is, the question for me, I, I'm willing to accept that. He says, wives submit, husbands love like Jesus loves the church. But the question is, where does that lead us? What does it mean to love the way Jesus loves the church? That's what we need to figure out because that will then affect how we apply, how we get to this idea of mutual submission. And what is that supposed to look like? And this is what blew my mind as I was preparing for this sermon. Okay? Look at what, how Paul describes the love that Jesus has for the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Okay, quick, quick observation that I'm not going to be able to go very deep into. Uh, ancient writers had these really sophisticated structures that we don't pick up on. And t- typically, we key on the first, ver- the first line of a paragraph or the last line of a paragraph as the most important. And sometimes that's true in the Bible, but other times they do this really sophisticated thing where th- it's called a chiasm, where the point is actually the middle. So the first point, the first sentence, matches what says the same thing as the last sentence. The second sentence says the same thing as the second to last sentence, and it actually builds up to the middle, which is the climax of the point. That's what Paul is doing here, and you'll see that he's going to end where he started. But the center of it, if you chart it out, is when he says, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Okay, that's the climax of this whole passage from wives submit to your husbands to the end where it's wives respect your husbands. The climax is this idea of Jesus presenting the church to himself as a radiant bride. And you're probably familiar with talking, you, or if you're, you may be familiar in scripture with talking about the church as the bride of Christ, right? There's something really important to recognize about that, that metaphor. In the Bible, when do Jesus and the church get married? In Revelation, at the end, in like the third to last chapter of the Bible, right? So, so there's a way in which we're not yet the bride of Christ. We are the fiance of Christ. And Jesus is, and, and the, the marriage is what happens at the end. Notice what it's talking about here. It's taught, this is all goal-oriented love. The point is that Jesus loves the church in a way that he is building her up and preparing her and cleansing her and and strengthening her so that she can be presented at the end as his radiant wife. It's goal-oriented. The way you would say that in big million-dollar theological terms is it's eschatological. It has to do with the end times. It has to do with the goals. So charity is goal-oriented. Jesus' love is meant to change the lives of the people he loves. And this makes perfect sense to us when we talk about our normal use of the word charity, right? Isn't our goal with charity, it's not dependence, but it's to help people to be able to sustain themselves, right? That's the goal for charity, is that we want to strengthen people, build them up. We want them to be able, to their situation to improve. If you have a charity and the people who receive that charity are no better off for having received it, you have to take a look, you have to figure some things out, right? 
the goal of charity, the goal of this love from a person of, in a position of authority or in a position of power to the person that is powerless is to build them up and improve their situation. That's, that holds true in charity, and that's what Jesus is doing with the church. And Paul is explicitly saying, husbands, love your wives the way he loves the church in doing this, in the way he builds her up toward that wedding day. The question then becomes, what does that mean? What does that wedding day look like? And there's a bunch of different directions that we could go. But one of the things we have to keep in mind is a very important theme that runs all the way through the Bible, from page one to the last page. And, and here's, here's one place where it just kind of jars you. He, in Romans, Paul says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glories. Co-heirs with Christ. We inherit with Jesus. Have you, have you noticed that? In the Old Testament, the promises are continually about God's people inheriting. And so in the New Testament, they pick that up and they talk about the church inheriting with Jesus. That's why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will call him our brother. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we also live with him. We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is the goal of God's love, of Jesus' love for the church? The goal of Jesus' love for the church is to build them up so that they can reign with him. And that's what the marriage actually means. The marriage means that the church becomes the queen to God's king, to Jesus' king, right? We are brought up with him to be co-heirs. He's, he's, he uses his power over us to build us up to be at his side. That's the way Jesus loves the church. And it is this amazing theme that runs throughout the Bible, the fact that God loves us so much that even though he has every right to dominate over us, he wants to love us sincerely, he wants us to love him back sincerely, and he wants us to reign with him. That's, that's God's love for his people. And we are called to love others that way. So Jesus' love changes the church specifically by elevating us to reign with him. And that is explicitly what Paul is talking about when he brings this language up in Ephesians 5. It is exactly the connection that he is making. What that tells us, then, is that loving like Jesus means using our power to elevate those without power or those with less power. That we use what God has given us to help those that are less fortunate, that are less influential, that are less capable. Right? We see that throughout Scripture. We see that in the character of God. That God gives, God will, He'll tell the rich, like, you have, you have your wealth so that you can use it to serve God, to serve others. It's not because you're worth more than other Christians. It's because you have it for the purposes of the kingdom, right? This is what it means to apply this kind of charity into our relationships. You'll notice that I'm in the wording of these points, I'm not specifically talking about marriage because I believe this is much broader than, it includes it, but it's much broader than that. Because Paul is also going to talk about relationships between parents and their children and relationships between masters and slaves with the same principle of mutual submission. But this idea of charity is the corrective that, that, that they use to make mutual submission possible in a community or in a situation where they are not on equal ground. 
And you can see how Paul applies this for husbands. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Remember, he is so focused on the church. He's really talking about the church, the relationship between Jesus and the church more so than he is focusing specifically on marriage. That's what he keeps drawing it back to. And it's interesting, the word when it says, but they feed and care for their body, that word feed, it means nourish. It means build up. It means raise. It's the word you would use for raising a child. Right? It means going from a, a, you know, a less developed state or a, or a weaker state into a stronger state. And then he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Some people will say he's quoting from Genesis in order to make the point that this is an eternal design for men and women and how they are always supposed to relate to each other. He, explicitly, he specifically says, No, I'm using this to talk about Jesus and the church. That's why I'm bringing up this quote. And this quote, he's talking about the becoming one flesh, that incredibly close union where we become one person, which means we are in the same position, right? There's a way in which Jesus became flesh, the word put on flesh so that we could become one flesh with him, right? To make it possible for us to be brought up to where he is. And so this is what he's calling others to do. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, that's where he lands the plane back where he started. That this is all, that what he's talking about, this submission and love, this is building towards a time of mutual submission. Because the problem is that this language about one-sided submission has been used to cause a lot of damage in people's lives and a lot of damage in relationships and actually has driven up divorce rates in, in, in Christian communities. It, it can be very destructive to make submission a blank check for one side over the other. And it's interesting that that's not how we apply submission in any of the other places it's brought up in Scripture. That's not how we consider our position beneath the government, and it's certainly not how the prophets, because we're told to be subject to the government. That's not how the prophets did it, right? The prophets were willing to call out uh, sin in the government, and the book of Revelation is a sustained critique of the Roman Empire, who is exactly who Paul was talking about when he said, be subject to the authorities. Jesus was being subject to the Jewish authorities all throughout his ministry, and he certainly was not passive or quiet about what they were doing wrong. Like he, this, submission, what it means, is, living, is not trying to invert the power structure, not trying to become the new dominator. Living within submission. So what he's saying is, um, he's saying that the wives submit, stay within the system, don't try to become the new masters. And then husbands, love them in a way that draws, love your wives in a way that draws them up to a place where mutual submission is possible. And you can tell that this is the direction he's going because it's where he continues to go. Because the next example that he uses in this, under this subject heading is, is uh, uh, children and their parents. So he tells the children to be subject to their parents. Then he tells fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That logic holds even more clearly when it comes to children. It, if a child never really grows up and leaves the home, like, is, is that, like, is, that's not the goal, right? A child that stays at home and is always like a child and is always, always under, like, like that's not the goal. The goal is to raise up a child to become an adult, 
right? And Paul is telling them, telling fathers to do that well, to raise them up well in the Lord, because they're then going to become their own adults when that, and then, then they become a, a peer, a brother or sister, you know, then that's the goal is to elevate them up. And the same thing you can tell is how he, as a pastor, deals with the issue of slavery. Because then he goes on and he tells them, he tells slaves to be subject to their masters. And then he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, first of all, I encourage you to go back and read this passage and wrestle with what it means to say, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Because it's, it's actually kind of hard to figure out because he tells the, the slaves, be subject to your master, obey your masters, and work hard for them. How does a master do that in the same way? Like it, it actually is, is difficult, but it's challenging. I, I think it's a, he's giving them a puzzle that they have to work out. But notice he says, don't threaten them, don't domineer them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Like you both actually serve Jesus, and he doesn't have favorites. So don't think that, you're actually, that God actually considers you this person's owner. He is both of your masters. Now, what does that look like played out, this, this perspective that he's telling them? Well, we know what it looks like because we have a letter that Paul wrote to a person about their own slave. And it's actually the, past of the, the book that we're going to do next week. It's a one-chapter book. And in it, I'm finding everything we've talked about in this whole series so far. It's amazing. But here's what he tells Philemon. Philemon owns a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away, met Paul, became a Christian, and Paul sent him back. And here's what Paul says. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. What is the goal of that relationship? What is the trajectory of this relationship between a Christian master and a Christian slave? It is that they become brothers. You can see that this is what Paul envisions for, for, for the trajectory of his message. That the traje- we are headed towards mutual submission, and the way we do that is through submission and charity and love that builds people up. And here's the, the, what I love about Paul. Paul is being crafty. Paul is being subversive. Because when we figure out how are we going to solve this puzzle and how are we going to get people in the right place without turning things on its head, charity is very subversive. Because what it does is it uses the world's oppressive power to elevate the powerless. Because instead of saying, hey, those without power revolt and become the new masters, what Christianity does is it speaks to both of them, but it says to those in power, use the power that this broken society has given you to elevate people up to where you are. Use that power against the system that wants to keep us apart and wants to dominate people and keep them down. Use what you've been given for the purposes of the gospel rather than for perpetuating us the haves and the have-nots. It's, it's incredibly subversive, and it has transformed our world over the last 2,000 years. And, and you can talk about this in so many different ways. Um, slavery is a big one. Unfortunately, uh, Slavery had to be kind of gotten rid of twice. But look at the way the slave trade was abolished in the Western world. The United States is an exception. We actually did have to fight over it. But what happened was there was a movement, mainly from people in the church, a movement of conscience saying that we should not have this power over these people. We should use our influence, use our power to abolish slavery and to raise them up, right? Right? And so in, 
in the rest of the West, it was done peacefully. And even in America, when we did fight over it, it wasn't a slave rebellion. Right? It wasn't an inverting, it it was actually a fight. It started out as a fight between people of privilege over whether we should have that privilege. That fact, the fact that the trajectory of history, the history of slavery went that direction tells us that there was something in that culture, there was something in Western culture that was incompatible with the idea of slavery. Something in our consciences that was incompatible with owning people. And I think it's this, this love of Christ. It is undoubtedly the influence of the gospel and this idea that when we love like Christ, we elevate those, we use our influence, our power to elevate those who don't have it. So the goal of all of this is mutual submission. This, it is this idea of us being together, being, being, submitting to each other and being able to be, be at the same level at the foot of the cross. But this love is a tool that we are given in order to make that happen. I, I know there is a million different ways that you can hear this sermon in a million different contexts, and please don't try and hear me in in a politically revolutionary way. I'm, I'm talking. I'm I'm really interested specifically in what the church is doing and what we are doing in our individual relationships. And and every one of us. I'm speaking to all of us as the husbands in this scenario because every one of us has some area where we have some kind of influence or some kind of authority or something that other people don't. The question is, what do we do with that? We are called to use it for the sake of those who don't. That's the love of Jesus. So, knowing that charity, this, this type of love, is essential to God's vision of reconciliation, the biblical vision of reconciliation. What does that tell us about the nature of reconciliation? This is really important, and this is really important for us to hear. First of all, reconciliation is not about keeping the status quo. It is about restoring God's design. One of the most tragic parts of church history is how often Christians have been willing to settle for something less than God's design because it kept the peace, because it meant that we weren't fighting. And we settled for a stable status quo because that's what we thought reconciliation was. As long as we're not fighting, it's okay. You know, as long as slavery doesn't cross the Mason-Dixon line and we don't fight, it's okay. Just to give an obvious example, an easy example. But like, we do that a lot. But for Christians, as Christians, we recognize that humans are, have a design in mind. God made us to live together in a particular way. And when we settle for something less than that, that's not actually reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't the lack of fighting, it is being restored to God's design. And the simplest, most obvious place to find that design is page one, where human beings are made in the image of God to share in His reign. And, and that's also what we see at the end. The very last depiction of humanity is us reigning together. And so that is, we're actually headed towards a goal, and our, our efforts toward reconciliation have to be headed towards that goal. We can't ever just settle for, at least we're not fighting. Right? But what that means... What that means for Christians, and this is, this is where we start to get uncomfortable, is that reconciliation requires us to use our advantages to elevate others, not ourselves. And first of all, that means that whether or not we have achieved reconciliation is not simply judged by whether I'm comfortable with where I'm at. Right? It is entirely possible that I'm comfortable, I'm fine with the way things are because I'm actually benefiting from it. But the point isn't for me to have the advantages. 
whatever advantages I have have been given to me by God for the sake of reconciliation. And so that means we may, you may actually be perfectly comfortable and be called by God to get uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of building his kingdom. And we don't really like that, which is natural. I don't like that. I don't like seeking, like making myself uncomfortable. But we are called to do that, and we're called to see our giftings and our, our advantages as opportunities to serve. And that means, as Christians, there's one last thing that we have to remember. There's probably a ton of things we have to remember. One last thing on the slides you have to remember uh, that, that will help us with this, because I think one of the things that makes us hesitant about living this out is we've been sold on a lie. We've been sold on a lie that, that building people up is a zero-sum game. And you know what a zero-sum game is? A zero-sum game means there is a fixed amount of points and everything everything someone else gets has to be taken away from me. It's kind of like when you talk about, okay, so wealth distribution, that that kind of idea is a zero-sum game because every penny you give another person, you have to take away from someone, right? Zero-sum game. There's only so much money unless you want to just make the dollar bill worthless. You actually have to take it from somewhere to give it somewhere else. That's a zero-sum game, okay? And what we get nervous about when we start talking about the fact that we are given advantages for other people is it means I have to give things up. I have to lose my advantage. I have to lose what I've been given, and I end up worse off. Here's the thing we have to understand. Remember, this is goal-oriented. We are headed somewhere, right? And that somewhere is better for everyone. I don't care what what advantages this broken system gives you. We are all better off in God's design. The richest person in the world is better off in God's design. And so whatever God calls you to sacrifice, it will ultimately be for your benefit too because everybody is better off in the kingdom, right? So reconciliation is not a zero-sum game. We all benefit from restoring God's design. And so as God calls on you to make uncomfortable sacrifices or as God calls on you to become uncomfortable, recognize that God's design is better for all of us. And no matter what you lose in the service of the kingdom, the kingdom is always better. Right? It is always better for all of us. This is where we're headed. And so we can give freely. We can sacrifice joyfully. We can build each other up with enthusiasm. We can rejoice with those who rejoice because we know this is better for everyone. It is where we are all called to be headed. Amen? As we close, I'm going to give you a couple of opportunities for how to take next steps, how to respond to what we've talked about today. And the first question I have for you is, have you, are you part of this movement? Are you part of this body of Christ? Have you given yourself to him? Because if you haven't, then the first step that you need to take is you need to give your life to Jesus. Today is the very best day to give your life to Jesus, to become a part of what he is doing, to become a part of this kingdom and, and how he is changing us. And, and you can come forward and make that decision as we sing our final song. If you're online, you can contact the church office or you can talk to a Christian that you trust. But today is the best day for you to make that decision to join in the mission of the church, to join in Christ, to be changed by him and to be a part of this. If you are a Christian and you're, you're kind of new to the church, then your next step could be to sign up for a Connect class. You can check that box on your card and we'll be in touch with you. And you can come and find out what does it mean to be a member here? What do we, what do, we do as a church? How do we disciple people? How are we connecting the community? What do we believe? All of those things and, and how you can move forward with us. Another next step is to join a small group. 
because small groups are our way of getting people really connected together because there's only so close you can get to people when you're in a worship service, especially when we're socially distanced. Small groups let us build relationships with other people and get to know each other and go through this journey together and build each other up. You can check that box on your Connect card if you'd like to join a small group. And maybe if you're in a small group and you're looking for a next step, a next step could be joining a service team, getting involved in the ministry of the church and serving others and building the other people up. The most obvious one we've talked about today is nursery care. That's a way you can serve. We have a lot of different ways that you can serve in the church, and serving is part of fulfilling the mission of the church, fulfilling our mission as Christians. So I would encourage you to consider uh, making one of those decisions. Maybe check a box and think about that as we stand and sing our final song.